Every day it's something, but something really good. We're talking azaleas, the luscious tips of hostas and ferns, and late tulips, daffodils, all kinds of things are happening. Welcome to Into the Garden with Leslie. This podcast is sponsored by Dos Amigos Landscaping, Color Blends, Bulbs, GreatGardenPlants.com, and artist Karen Blair. I'm Leslie Harris, and bada-bing, bada-boom, spring is happening. Our plant of the week is the Myosotis, or Forget-Me-Not. I'll be chatting with Kate Daly, a flower farmer in Alabama, who has a special interest in the monarch butterfly. And so do I. And so do we all. And the playlist is about what to do in your garden this week which could include just sitting there and watching things pop. Hey, last week we had a special addendum about Historic Garden Week, and I hope some of you stuck around to listen to Fran Carden, the state chair of the event, and Debbie Lewis, the president of the Garden Club of Virginia, which puts it on, talk about the tour. Let me just go over the local part of the tour real fast in case that appeals to any of you to know more. Julie Hart in Tasmania and others further afield, please take this opportunity to contemplate the cosmos or skip ahead a couple of minutes. On Saturday, April 15th, you can go to Morven from 10 to 5. You should arrive by 4 at the latest to do it justice for sure. Morven is a UVA-owned estate that boasts lovely gardens and history. Tickets are available at the entrance for $20 cash or checks. You can't buy tickets ahead of time because Morven does not open in case of inclement weather but the long-range forecast is actually looking pretty darn good. Unfortunately, and contrary to what is in the guidebook, the Japanese garden will not be open this spring. It was going to be, but there was a last-minute change, and the hope is for next year. On Sunday, April 16th, there will be three private gardens open in the North Garden area. One is a real gardener's garden with lots of natives. Two have their homes open also. There's a formal parterre. There's a beautiful walled garden. There are chickens. There is a tortoise named Churchill. He is not to be missed. Tickets for this day must be purchased ahead of time and online at vagardenweek.org. On Monday, April 17th, lots of wonderful parts of the University of Virginia will be highlighted and there's no reason to buy a ticket for these gardens. You just show up. Come see five pavilion gardens, the Cars Hill Garden, including some of the interior of the house, and the Memorial to Enslaved Laborers, which is new and which is very powerful and beautiful. Okay, back to our regular programming, and I actually have a special addendum tacked on to the end of this show also, but it's not about Historic Garden Week. Many of my regular listeners know my friend Marianne Wilburn, who is a writer for Garden Rant Blog and also for the American Gardener magazine. Oh, and actually, you know, she just had a column published in the Wall Street Journal, which is very cool. She and Scott Berline, who is also a friend of mine and a garden speaker and a writer for Horticulture Magazine, are on this crazy trip out west where you get to see a ton of new plants the breeders have, well, the breeders have have bred. They have bred these new plants. So stay tuned at the end of this episode for a semi-serious conversation explaining that trip, then a less serious quick conversation talking about the letters that these two write to each other on Garden Rant, and then a fairly ridiculous outtake type of conversation. Yeah, if you stick around that long, you won't need further explanations from me, except that I apologize ahead of time. The plant of the week is the Myosotis, or forget-me-not. It's one of those things where the Myosotis is quicker and easier to say, but the forget-me-not name is so cute and almost everybody knows it, so it's a toss-up as to whether to go botanical or common on this one. Unfortunately, a little bit of research on this plant reveals that forget-me-not has somewhat criminal tendencies, although I still love it. That feeling does not seem to be universal, however. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. 
Myosotis sylvatica is a low-growing perennial. Technically, it's a perennial, but it seems like a biennial or something because it's so short-lived. That doesn't mean you won't have it forever once you get it started. It's one of those guys that just sticks around through generations of seeds. You can grow it here in the United States in zones 3 through 8, so all over the place, and it's native to, sadly, Europe. So not a native plant, but I do see early pollinators enjoying it here on my property. Here's what's good about the forget-me-not. It can be a little bit of food for early pollinators. It self-sows readily. It's one of the few true blue flowers in the garden because, as you know, because you're a gardener, when gardeners say blue, we're actually talking about purple like 90% of the time. This flower is tiny, adorable, and blue. There are few sights more charming than yellow daffodils poking up through those little blue stars. So it's great to pair with mid and late spring bulbs. You can grow it in sun or plenty of shade. It is deer and rabbit resistant. It grows fine in dry soil, but it can tolerate wet soil too. So that's a lot of good stuff. Let's move on to the bad. The bad, it self-sows readily. And to me, that's something good because I love to shake the seeds underneath azaleas and trees little places where I would rather have something cute and interesting than not. But unfortunately, it's one of those things that could escape your cultivation and invade wild places, depending on where you live. This is not the case for me, but when you look up Forget-Me-Not on the Missouri Botanical Database, it has a big red font talking about what a noxious weed it is. This makes me sad, but it's certainly easy to understand. Truth be told, I only started with a few myosotis in this garden that I intentionally brought from Connecticut 10 years ago, and they certainly haven't gone crazy here, even though I shake their seeds every spring because I like them so much. I feel pretty strongly that I don't want to have any non-native plants escape my cultivation. So luckily, I can pretty much guarantee that these don't because I really have to encourage them in my very own garden. So I know they're not going out to the woods. But you should be aware of these evil tendencies. And now let's go on to the ugly. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Before we go on to the ugly, here's a tip that you might already know Brunnera microphylla, which is also not a native plant, but it's nowhere near as invasive nor as easy to grow. Brunnera has almost identical, adorable little blue flowers at this time of year. And with Brunnera, some people call it Siberian boo gloss, you get much more interesting foliage that holds up for the whole season. The foliage of Myosotis gets pretty darn crispy and ugly by the time summer rolls around. I tend to cut Myosotis down to the ground where it offends me, and that takes care of that problem. And while I'm cutting it, that's when I take those crispy seed pods and I shake them in other parts of the garden. I almost treat forget-me-nots like a spring ephemeral. But anyway, back to the non-invasive Brunnera, there are all kinds of cool cultivars of this plant, like Alexander's Great and Jack Frost. Those have really interesting white variegated leaves. There's also one called Hadspin Cream. I don't grow that one, but it has a creamy color, almost like a pale yellow variegation in the leaf. So if you're worried about populating the earth, with too many forget-me-nots, consider Brunnera. Now let's talk about the ugly of myosotis because there is an aspect of myosotis that is quite ugly. As I mentioned, it's that post-spring look of either brown, crispy leaves, like you've started your summer barbecue in the middle of your border, or possibly mildew, and neither of these looks is good. There's no reason for you to become a victim of their ugly summer narrative because we know that they self-sow, and very generously, so feel free to get rid of anything that offends. Hey, I haven't said my twee line about my plant of the week, so let's see if I can make you grimace by saying, the forget-me-not, give it a grow. Not difficult, I assure you, and do consider Brunnera if you think that the myosotis could escape your cultivation. 
My friend Karen Blair is a Charlottesville-based painter whose work is exuberant, abstract, and bold with colors and shapes. She takes commissions, and one of you listeners out there has been smart enough to send her photos of your garden that you wanted her to get onto one of her large canvases. Y'all go to the show notes on lhgarden.com, the blog, and see examples and links to her work, and you're going to love it. Coming up, we're going to talk with Kate Daly about monarch butterflies. Welcome back to Into the Garden with Leslie, and I am so pleased today to talk with Kate of The Bloom and Truth, and she's a new Instagram account, fairly new. She, she started last April for this account, and she was brought to my attention by my friend Amanda, the ever hopeful gardener, and the reason is because they are in cahoots about a particular insect that we all love, and it is the monarch. And so we're going to talk about that, but also Kate is a flower farmer and a very interesting person. And she has a lovely and amusing Instagram feed that you all ought to check out. So all these reasons, Amanda said, get Kate on your show. And I'm like, okay, I will do that. And here we are. Hi, Kate. Hi, how are you? Very, very well. Thank you for coming to see us. Let's let's talk first about the monarch messengers. Let's just sort of, because that's such an important thing. I'm sort of getting into them myself. My friend, Mary Wright Baylor, who gardens up in Northern Virginia, is so into them. And she sort of has inspired me. And I had a few in my garden last fall. I, I mean, I, I have had them, but now I understand, oh, this is what the chrysalis looks like. And this is what you possibly should do. What are you doing what are the monarch messengers doing to help this little guy who's in trouble yeah the monarch is such an incredible insect and it's kind of like the poster right for pollinators everywhere like when you think pollinator you think monarch butterfly and so i believe it was in july around july of 2022 where it was added to the endangered species list by the iucn and it really affected a lot of us um, on the Instagram community, it was it was one of these just it was our friend in the garden. It was something that we really all felt attached to, and so when that happened, it affected a lot of us. And so I had started a feed of just in general, just some Instagram followers that I really, really just respected, both in and out of the garden, and was like, "Hey, let's do something for the monarch." and so many of them just jumped in and we started the Monarch Messengers. Our goal is to create awareness for what's going on and then helping people to do their research, to bring it down to a level that's understandable and to help people understand how they can help and implement practices in their own personal gardens to help the Monarch. This is such a wonderful thing because knowledge is power and it's so interesting and it can be fairly easy. If you are a regular listener of mine, you'll know that I've dabbled into this topic, not like these monarch messengers, but sort of just like, hey, ooh, yeah, I got some caterpillars and then I saw the chrysalis and then he got born and blah, blah, blah. The ICUN, for my listeners who don't know, is the International Union for Conservation of Nature. I had thought when I talked at one stage about, oh, oh they're on the endangered list, the National Endanger List is put out by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Association. It's not on that list. And that's kind of bad um, in that it might be that that organization deems it, um, well, deems it as less of a priority. I have heard that it's it's a bad enough situation so that they feel like there are other causes that can be saved. This one, this one is bad. Um, how, how are you seeing that in, in terms of 
I don't know if you have any specific data um, in terms of numbers or you just you just know it's bad. You want to help how you can. How, what are the messengers trying to do? Are they trying to do science or just cheerleading or a combination? We try to do a combination. Um, so we do a lot of research. All of us do. And we actually have somebody who doesn't necessarily feel comfortable doing the reels right now, but she is kind of our cheerleader in the background who does a lot of research and and graphic art for us, which is great. And we work together as a group to pull from each other's knowledge, which is nice. Um, we're all from different states, which is also a huge benefit because we can pull from each other's native seed knowledge and all that stuff. But we also are gardeners in a sense of every gardener likes to experiment. So we like to just share with people what we're doing in our gardens on top of what the science is. And then our motto is kind of like, do you. So here's the information that's out there. Here's how a lot of us have implemented it. Here's how you can implement it and you choose what works for you. As long as you're doing something for the monarchs, that's what's important. I think that's really great. It makes it accessible and friendly. Uh, and any step that can be done is uh, is a good one. What are your top tips for people listening that they could do that are, you know, some I'm sure more difficult than others, but but things to think about that, that any individual gardener could attempt in their own garden? Yeah, I think the first one is to look at your gardening practices. So the use of herbicides and pesticides in your garden, start to research those, even organic herbicides and pesticides. Many people think organic means safe, but organic pesticides and herbicides still do what their purpose to do, which is to kill. And then the other thing is to see where you can incorporate native plants into your garden. So diversity is, is huge. And as gardeners, we always love flipping through those seed catalogs and just getting those things that pop out to us, but start to think about what you're planting and why you're planting it and start to look outside the box into what your native plants are, because there's a lot of beautiful native plants. People often think native equals invasive, and that's not always the case. So doing your research on native is super important. And I think the other thing that people can do is just to raise awareness. So bring it up in conversation. So many people don't even know what a monarch is or what they do or why it's important. So I think just if you learn about the monarch and you've learned something that fascinates you, start sharing that with other people and it gets that ball rolling. So in a conversation like that, people who would be ignorant and with me, information comes and goes out of my brain, which is a sieve, but I know it's really important that they get enough juice, enough vitamins, enough food to be able to make that incredible migration. Can you tell us about some of the details of that, where they go, how long it takes, how many lifespans are within that migration? Because it's thousands of miles. One butterfly doesn't do all that stuff, right? Oh, they're incredible. <laughs> they're just the most incredible insect. So yeah, they usually span about four generations. Some have seen five, but that's not as common. So, you know, the fourth generation, the migrating one is the one that does the main migration is really incredible because the butterfly itself usually only lives, I think it's like about on average about two weeks. 
but now that that last generation, the one that actually flies, that weighs less than a paper clip, <laughs> you know, will actually live about six to nine months on average, wow. which is incredible to think that and how they they just know exactly where to go and how to do this migration and how like when it comes to the monarch, they need all aspects of our help. So from that caterpillar stage to that butterfly stage, they need that milkweed to be able to lay their eggs, to be able to grow as a caterpillar. And then once they become that butterfly, they need those native nectar sources in order to continue the, like their generations and also on their migration back. And so you used to garden in Minnesota. You were up there for 13 years mm -hmm. and now you're down in Alabama. We'll talk about that because that's, it's like, okay, let's just start over with our flower farming. And that's going to be an interesting topic. But right now, what are your differences in terms of what you see when they stop to see you and what they're doing in your Minnesota garden versus your Alabama garden? I, I feel like they're in my garden, the caterpillars, well, therefore must be the butterflies in late summer although I might just be too busy to notice them earlier. Do you, can you tell us anything about that kind of thing? Yeah. So in Minnesota, they are what started summer for me. It was kind of like, oh. they brought the warmth for me. When I saw them, it was like, their monarchs are here. So they follow the warmth. That's what they do. And so that's what it meant for me in the North. And they actually stayed with me all through summer until they were the always the first ones to notice the change. And so when they started to leave and I started seeing less, it was like, oh, winter is coming. They know it and they're leaving me. Yeah. <laughs> and here in Alabama, it's actually really neat because the monarch is actually the state insect. Oh, fun. Here in Alabama, which I didn't know when I moved here. But so I get them early in the spring. I get them much earlier than I did in Minnesota. And then I also get them much later because they're starting their migration back. And there, there is actually a, a place here in Alabama where they do overwinter, oh. which is kind of very Southern Alabama. I want to go and see it, but I've kind of been able because of the move to see them in all different stages and to meet the different generations, which has been kind of neat. Yeah. That's cool. When you see caterpillars in your garden, do you do anything? Like I have been told, oh, okay, you know, we, I need to, I have the caterpillars. I had like a dozen last year and now I should probably protect them from birds and put them in one of those netty things. Um, and then somebody else said, no, you really probably shouldn't mess with it. You know, they're, they're big guys. They, they, some of them will be picked off, but nature is probably better without you and your nets that came from Amazon. What, what's your, so guide me on that. What do I do with these caterpillars that I really want to protect? Oh, that is the all controversial topic, isn't that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> to yeah. to like whether to step in and help or to not. You know, we as monarch messengers, we tend to feel like we go with what the research is from the from the organizations that have truly, truly researched the monarchs. And, and the most, most of them agree that we should not step in, not bring them inside. I do know that there are many people who, who have seen that where they have lots of caterpillars and then all of a sudden they're all gone. And they do say lots of times they're there. You just, you just Can't don't see, see them. them. Yeah. They don't, they're not always going to be near necessarily once they, once they start to metamorphose. 
So once they go into that chrysalis, so you're not always going to see them, they're way harder to find. But I'm one who's always felt like the monarch has been an inspiration and is such a good educational tool too. So I think as a whole, the monarchs, we necessarily don't need to step in for them. Okay. But, you know, I do think, especially for the kids, raising one or two to see that process is super important. And it also develops a love for them. Yes. And this is one of those things where you do you. You do that research. You go to the reputable sources, these people who have just put their entire life into researching the monarchs. And then you come up with something that that fits for you in there and make your own ethical decision. I think that's such great advice. So I just think it's really neat to point out that you could go through that process with a child. Uh, Kate and I were talking before we hit record and she is the mama of a six-year-old girl, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I have have a bunch of grandchildren, but the five-year-old girl, well, there are only a couple who actually speak English at this stage. The, the four-year-old boy is, he's really into Tyrannosaurus Rex. I can't do anything about that. The five-year-old girl is so into monarchs that that's all she asked for Santa from Santa Claus. And they came to our house for Christmas. And sure enough, she got these huge wings and she could even see them and say, oh, this is a female. I'm a girl butterfly because of the markings on the wing. I mean, she's, and this is because of a teacher that she has who is totally into monarchs. It's, it's a great conversational teaching thing. Tell me about your daughter. Is she into it? Oh my goodness. Yes. So I actually, for the monarch messengers, I dress up as a full caterpillar. (laughs) I have seen that. I have seen that. (laughs) Yeah. Face paint, antennae. So of course my daughter has to follow suit. So we take turns being butterflies and caterpillars and (laughs) she wraps herself in the blankets and say that she's in her chrysalis. And, and um, so we have raised a few monarch butterflies together so that she can see the process. That's great. And I think that was an important project for her. It really helped her to, to just embrace them and to respect them and to appreciate them. And so now when she sees them out in nature, she's always she always thinks about that. So she's always so gentle and she thinks, oh, I got to be careful because I know that they're here. Yes. And it was a beautiful learning experience for her. Yeah. And so now I know that as she grows up, she will never not think about the monarch. Yeah. I feel that way about, about my granddaughter. And of course, because she has all these little siblings and a couple of cousins down the way, I'm hopeful that she'll spread the word. But I am so grateful to this teacher. I have to make sure that she knows how important like, this is just a nice coincidence that I'm into it too. I'm sure there are a lot of people who are into it, but it just makes, it warms the cockles of my heart that my little Devin is so into monarchs. So that's really, that's just a fun part of it. Let's talk for a minute about milkweed. Okay, so this is Asclepius and this is the plant that we all wanna have. Tell tell my listeners why it's so important. So milkweed is the only plant that monarch caterpillars will eat. So it's essential for them. They can't function without it, really. And so they need the milkweed for many different reasons. The milkweed in itself is poisonous, so they can handle that. And it's actually beneficial to them. So when they eat this poisonous milkweed, they become poisonous. And so it wards off many predators. It really gives them the best chance at life to continue their life cycle. 
And the mother monarchs are really incredible because they actually go through and they pick the perfect leaf and plant to give their babies the best chance at life. So they actually know the toxicity of the milkweed plant, the mothers do. And usually they will pick a milkweed plant that has the most amount of toxicity to it, which is super cool. And yeah, the native milkweed is just one of the best things that you can do for the monarch. And there are a bunch of different types. There are a bunch of different types that you can grow with different color flowers. There are also cultivars, but you want to stick to native when and if you can. What kinds do you grow or what kinds will you grow once your flower farm gets established? I think this year I'm actually growing seven. I went a little crazy native to my area. I have swamp milkweed. I have butterfly weed. I have some poke milkweed. I have spite. I think it's called spider. Like a, it's like a spider milkweed. But there are, there are so many different varieties, um, so many different types. And any milkweed is, they'll eat it. So it doesn't, as long as it's a milkweed, that's exactly what they need. So it doesn't matter what kind of milkweed, as long as it's native. And so native is always recommended though. So there is that beautiful tropical milkweed, which people love to plant. And of course, that's another controversial topic. It is. Yeah, it is. I actually had an experience with it last year where the reason that I had so many monarch caterpillars in my little garden was because of that one, which is the curavasica. And they were eating that and they were ignoring the three other types I had in various other parts of the garden. So I wrote to Doug Tallamy, who is the entomologist at the University of Delaware. And I'm like, hey, so what's going on? And there's this a disease that can poison them. Well, as you just said, the native plant does have poison in it, but this one can kill them. So um, Asclepius curvasica carries a disease that I can't name, but the initials of it are OE. Mm-hmm. Can you name it? I can't, I can never name it. <laughs> yeah, I I learned it for a reel that we did. And now- So what is it? Well, now I don't know it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so we have this in common. Great. Yeah. Okay. OE, just remember OE. OE, yeah. So lots of sources say, don't grow it, don't grow it. But I'm like, dude, this is the only one they were interested in. And Doug Tallamy gave me a really good tip. He said, cut back the other ones that you're growing in midsummer so that there's fresh new growth. They might be more interested in fresh new growth. You know, some Asclepias are not the most beautiful plants of the world, especially when they get old and a little crispy and and leggy in our hot, humid summers. And so to cut it back, to give that fresh growth a chance to attract them, I thought was a really good tip. He also did say, and I know that some people would disagree with this, that OE is something that can only lurk in the perennial form of the Asclepius curvasica. Mine is, you know, I'm, I'm in 7B, well, I'm in 7A officially. It seems like it's leaning towards 7B. Uh, it dies off. And so just the seeds are in the soil. The new plants come every year. My plants don't harbor OE. There is still that thing, and tell me what you've seen in your research, that by supplying them with the curvasca, with the tropical, I might be throwing off their migration patterns. What do you know about that? Yeah, so there's, I mean, of course, there's different thoughts on that. And the research is ever growing. Changing, yeah. Yeah, Um, so what the experts do know is that when it comes to tropical milkweed, so natives know exactly when to start, when to shut down, whereas tropical milkweed does not. So it will wait till that first frost until it dies. Whereas native milkweed with the change in weather will 
start to shut down. And that, that's part of the signal for the monarchs to start their migration. So as that tropical milkweed, it's, it's going to stay very green, fresh, delicious. Yes. That tropical milkweed is going to stay fresh until your frost. Yeah. So then the monarchs think, oh, I could, I could stick around because the milkweed is still good. Yeah. And also the other thing is the monarchs that migrate, one of the reasons that they have such a long lifespan is because they actually don't reproduce. So you don't want to encourage that generation to reproduce on the milkweed. Mm -hmm. They need, their purpose is to start their migration and then they will not. They got to go. Yeah, they they have to go. Their whole purpose is to migrate. Okay. They don't start to reproduce until they start heading back. And so by providing a long, you know, buffet for, you know, with the Curavasica, I like, I shouldn't even have that in addition probably to the, to the native species because it's, it'll be like. My native species will get all crispy and start to fold up. And and then, I don't know, maybe I could just pull the curvasica at that stage. Just like, dudes, you got to go. Like, no more food here. Get on your way. And you can, there are thoughts saying that it's better to have tropical milkweed than no milkweed. Some people say that. And yeah. it does take more research, though. And it does take more thought. Once you plant native, you don't have to think about it. Right. You can plant it and leave it and go and know it's going to do exactly what it's supposed to do. If you have tropical milkweed, you're going to need to stay on top of it. One of the reasons they like tropical milkweed is because tropical milkweed has a higher toxicity than most native milkweeds. Interesting. So that's one of the reasons that the monarchs pick that one. But it's also important to know that in warmer climates, sometimes the toxicity of a tropical milkweed can actually kill the monarch caterpillars. Sometimes the toxicity is too high for them. Oh, and is that the OE or is that something different? No, that's something totally different. So when a tropical milkweed is in a really, really warm environment, the toxicity grows. And at Mm -hmm. times, tropical milkweed can be too toxic for monarchs. Okay, this is great information. And I have gotten just a whole bunch more native milkweeds. If some of my curvasica stick around, I might do an experiment of just like, because actually where those seeds are, where they were self-seeding is right by where I planted my natives. Right. And if they coexist together, those two plants, I might just take a look and say, okay, who's eating what? But I know now that I should not distract them and, and they need to get a wiggle. And so and so I should pull that curvasica at the time when I, I should research, it's probably late summer, like, guys, you, you can't stay here. You got, you've got to go. Bye-bye. Yeah, I think the main thing with tropical milkweed is to do your research and find what works best for you. Yeah. I err on the side of caution. So for me, yeah. there's so many beautiful native milkweeds out there. It's like, I'm not going to waste my time with one. I also like less work. So yes. <laughs> so to me, the tropical milkweed isn't so much more beautiful that I have to have it. Yeah, I like the whites and the pinks myself. So, all right, so you are a cut flower farmer. You're definitely going to grow this plant. Is it a good cut flower? It, it can be. All right, what are the best ones for cut flowers? What are the best types? I, I actually have never grown them for cut flowers. Oh, okay. I know people who have used them. Um, they would be difficult to grow for a cut flower, I would think, because of their milky substance. Yeah. Because of the sap in them. But yeah, I don't know. I really don't know. I've never, I've never actually used them as a cut flower. All right. Well, let's go on to the cut flower thing. So, and and let's start at the beginning. How did you get into gardening? 
Oh, that's a long story. <laughs> but I always gardened on and off. My parents always had a small vegetable garden. My grandparents and my great grandparents were huge gardeners, huge gardeners. And my grandmother loved it so much that after she had her stroke, my grandpa used to actually carry her out to her garden oh. and lay her on a blanket so she could weed because that was just where she <laughs> was happy. Wow. And when I was about 20 weeks pregnant with my daughter, I became a single mom. And that was an incredibly hard time for me. It was like something that I was supposed to do with somebody else. Now it was just me and I was alone and I was by myself yeah. and I was scared and didn't have confidence in myself, didn't feel like I could do it. Uh -huh. And I was about 30 weeks pregnant and I was staring outside and I said, I'm going to go plant a garden. And I, I did, I got out, I bought a tiller and I was out there at 30 weeks and I was tilling my garden and I was planting my garden. And I just found so much joy in it. I always say it was among my flowers and my weeds that I found my missing pieces. Every year, I just found more missing pieces of myself and more of my just my strengths that I didn't know that I had. And gardening, gardening just centered me. It just made me realize I, I could do this. I, I, could, I could do anything. That is very cool. And then so from there you made it into a business. Was that, was that a quick decision or was that a long process? How did that work? Well, I worked in healthcare actually for a, many, many years. And when I became a single mom, I just could not do it. I couldn't do the hours, you know, it was 12 hour shifts and I'd never saw my daughter. I'd wake up and go to work. And when I'd come home, she'd be sleeping. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I need to, I need to do something else. And so I was like, I love to garden. Can I make money at this? And so I actually initially started a business where it was just helping other people garden. And then that took off. And I thought, well, I want to make money at my own garden. Like I want to garden. I don't want to have someone else garden for me. <laughs> I want to do it. Yeah. So that's when I found cut flowers and it just, it, it took off and I was surprised, but I did it for two years and they were great. And that was up in Minnesota. That was in Minnesota. Okay. So what prompted the move to Alabama and how's it going for you down there? Talk about different gardening. Yeah. I, I, like I told you earlier, I just, I didn't want to live in a place that hurt my face <laughs> anymore. There is something beautiful about a Minnesota winter, but after 13 of them, I was done. Oh, I bet. Ugh. Um, so we decided, let's go. Let's go somewhere warm. So as a family, we did that. My biggest two cheerleaders are my mom and dad. And so they helped me raise my daughter and they helped me with all of these flower farming dreams. They are behind me 100%. And so they were like, let's go. And so that's what we did. We we picked up our homestead and we put it in a U-Haul. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. So you have the support of your parents. To, th that's great because that would have been kind of difficult to just you and your daughter just go. Oh, yeah. Support is huge. Even if you're not a single parent, but you're starting a business, especially with something like in agriculture, you you have to have your cheerleaders because it's not an easy, it's not an easy choice. Yeah. You've been there now for how long? So we just got here in October. In October. 
So you're not even understanding the differences entirely yet, although you probably no. saw some really cool things blooming in like uh, December, which you didn't expect. So yeah, that was neat. What are you doing to get ready to farm there? Have you got a you know a good piece of land? Where what stage are you in? Yeah, so I've got my land. So we have about 15 acres. Of course, I won't farm all of that because I'm one person. I got my compost ready. I found a local organic sheep farmer who lets me have all of the poop I could ever want. Lovely. Yes. And I am currently sheep mulching. So just killing all my grass and weeds and getting ready, just getting ready to plant. I am probably going to skip this spring, but we'll have most of the summer flowers. So. Okay. Um, and how do you, how does it work in terms of finding clients? Do you sell to florists or to just people who want weekly deliveries or farmers markets, all of them? What, what, who do you sell to? Well, in Minnesota, I sold primarily to florists. I actually had one florist that I really worked well with. She just saw the benefit and the value of locally grown flowers that were grown in, in a sustainable way. Mm -hmm. So because I always say I, I'm kind of beyond organic because I don't just do organic practices, but I'm more of a regenerative gardener. Most of my blooms are just grown with nothing but compost. And when it comes to pest control, I don't use any chemicals, whether organic or non-organic. I primarily sold to her. And then here, I'm still learning the rope. So I'm still finding it out. I don't think that the florists here will be as receptive since they still use a lot of plastic flowers in their, oh, no. <laughs> in their arrangements. But you know what? I am totally up for the challenge. So <laughs> I'm starting to learn how to arrange because I feel like that might be a way to go for me here. Yeah. Yeah. That would be a very big challenge to like, you know, get the word out that this is actually better than plastic or even the things that go into, you know, arrangements. I'm always so sad when I get somebody sends me flowers and it, you know, you got that horrible oasis stuff at the bottom. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I wish I wish it hadn't happened that way. But thank you for the flowers. So you hope to find a florist. Is there a farmer's market that, that could help you get on your way? Yeah, we, we do have um, several things like that around here. Ag agriculture in general is very big around here. And I'm told that I'm literally going to be the only flower farmer within like a hundred miles. <laughs> oh, that's exciting. So this is a big opportunity. So it is a big opportunity and it's a good educational opportunity. So I think that's half of the work that you put into flower farming is education on why local flower farming is so important. When you buy local flowers, you you form a love of flowers. People don't truly understand that the, the flowers that they buy, like at a grocery store, you lose so much of the scent. It's just not the same. It's not the same experience. And so I think when you experience local flowers, you, you find a love of flowers that you didn't know you had. And so all these people who live within 100 miles of you are going to get this wonderful new experience. Yay. I hope so. <laughs> Yeah. Tell me this. So you put, you know, you grow Asclepias that is that we've established that that may or may not be a good cut flower. You certainly don't grow it to cut it. What is your personal garden like compared to what you picture your cutting, you know, your cutting beds? How will that differ? And will you have time to actually fiddle around in a personal garden or is it just all about the business? 
So I garden, like I just, I do everything. Do I take on too much? I absolutely do. But I grow basically all of our produce Wow. for our family. Um, so like, for instance, I've got 500 onions coming at the end of the month and 50 pounds of seed potatoes. And whoa, I take on a lot on top of doing the Monarch. So, and I'm also creating my Monarch way station, but I find that it's, it's doable. (laughs) (laughs) It is doable. Um, but it, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. Yeah. It's a lot of work. Dawn to dusk. I'm sure. Tell us about the Monarch way station. How does that work? What do you need to do to get that going? So Monarch way station is, it's such a cool thing. And actually we have some of our messengers which have actually been like certified Monarch Way Stations. I don't know if that's what you call it, but they've basically met all the criteria. And so they get to say, yes, this is a Monarch Way Station, which hopefully I'll be able to do, probably not this year. But basically a Monarch Way Station is like everything that a Monarch needs. Their milkweed and it's going to have their nectar sources. It's also going to have an ecosystem that will benefit them. Um, it's going to be built in a way that help gives them the best chance at life. The spacing of the plants are going to be able to protect them from predators, and they're going to ha- find everything that they need there. So whether it's it's their milkweed for a food source for their caterpillars, or a nectar source in the spring, or for a fall nectar source as they're on their way back, it's going to be everything that they need in one. It's a one-stop shop for a monarch. Yay! So if you want to become a Monarch Way Station, one way to do it is to go to monarchwatch.org and they have some really good information there. And then you've been looking at something called Journey North. Yeah, Journey North. I'm not sure if you can register as a way station there, but it's an awesome website to report your findings and your sightings of monarchs or caterpillars. Or other things like hummingbirds, I'm saying. Yeah, they, well, they do. I think they do a lot of different yeah, they do a lot of different migration yeah. things. Okay. Monarch Watch specifically gets you that groovy little sign if you want to be actually posting that in your garden that says Monarch Way Station. Hey. And so I will put links to this in the show notes. With that Monarch Way Station, you're just aiding them on their journey, which is kind of complicated. Let's go back to that. They Some of them end up in Mexico. Those numbers have been way down. I read something last fall, I think. But there was a recent study that said that they might be going back up. Tell us about the migration. Actually, we had really good numbers, I think, this year um, in, in both California and in Mexico, which was nice to see. Um, and it shows that everybody's doing their part. But their their migration is so important. I think a lot of people don't realize that while the monarch is native to North America, it's in other parts of the world. Um, so it's in places like Australia and New Zealand and parts of the Caribbean. But the thing is, none of their monarchs migrate. So the North American monarch is the only one that actually does the migration. And that is truly what's endangered, is this significant journey that they take of over 2,000 miles sometimes is, we could lose that. We could lose one of the most incredible, one of the most incredible animals that we have the privilege of knowing and seeing we could lose that migration and i i can't imagine i can't imagine not having that yeah i can't either i you know one time before i knew anything about anything 
I was tired from gardening. I must have been probably in my 30s. And I just lay down in the middle of my lawn. I guess it was fall. Anyway, and I just, I might have fallen asleep. I opened my eyes and I saw this line of something flying by me in the sky above me. I'm like, what the hell is that? And I'm like, oh my God, those are butterflies. I, I thought, I mean, maybe I was still asleep. Maybe it never happened. But I, I feel like, and, and, and of course, anybody else would say, and from that moment on, I totally dedicated my life to the monarch. No, I did not do that. <laughs> I went back, to, went back to being a school teacher and raising my children and coaching basketball. However, I remember that moment as being a really good, good thing, good thing that migration is important. You said that there's a place where they actually overwinter in Alabama and you're going there. Where, where is it? Do you know? I would love to go there. So it's in, it's towards the Southern deep South part of the state. Um, I almost feel like they probably just got too tired and they were like, yeah, I'm not going to Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's actually a resort that you can stay at where you can do a tour. Oh, cool. Yeah. I need to, I need to do more research on it because I just moved here. So I haven't obvious, I haven't really left my little town and done any kind of exploring in Alabama yet, but it's definitely one of the places that I want to go. Well, it sounds like you've been busy and it's too bad that nobody who's listening can actually type in the words resort, monarch, Alabama. It's too bad we can't, there's no place where we can type that in and get some answers. I bet. bet That's right. Yeah. Uh, And I will do that for the show notes. There's so many pollinators in the world. And and, uh, if you start to delve into that, you realize not so beautiful things such as Beetles and flies are excellent pollinators. And then you're like, oh, cool, I guess. Monarchs are the ones we want to really know about. They're, they're beautiful. So tell us, tell us about them and pollination. Yeah, so they are pollinators. They do that job of being a pollinator, but they are not the most important pollinators. Um, oftentimes you'll get people that say, why, are, why is the monarch so important? And I think that's because it is beautiful. And it is like the poster child for pollinators everywhere. Uh And so a lot of organizations talk about the monarch as kind of being that canary in the coal mine. Uh. So it's really sounding the warning Mm -hmm. for pollinators everywhere. So when you see their decline, that means that there are other pollinators, more important pollinators that are better at pollination that need your help too. When you benefit the monarch and you start bringing in those native plants and those nectar sources and the milkweed, you're not just benefiting the monarch. You're really benefiting pollinators everywhere. And as to Doug Tallamy's idea of the homegrown national park, if we just all did it, just buy a few plants and, and you know, your neighbor down the street has a few plants and, you know, and then another neighbor a, a half a block away has a few plants and, and the native stuff and the no pesticides and the no herbicides it would be so much better and we'd really start to see a difference. This is not really magical thinking. It sounds magical because there's a lot of people who are just too busy to even think about gardening. But if everybody who did garden did it in that way, it would be so helpful, wouldn't it? Yeah. The goal is to build a connected network for them. So if everybody just had a little patch just to get them through to the next patch, while they're doing their migration. That's all that that's all they need. That's all they're asking for is just that little safe space. Yeah, that little safe space. Kate, thank you so much for coming to talk with me about this and your flower farm. Again, Kate's a great account to follow on Instagram, the Bloom and Truth. And I just am very excited to see the progress as you build your flower farm. 
you might become the next florette. You just don't know. <laughs> I need some uh, employees. <laughs> yeah, you probably would. How can you compare yourself with Flora? She doesn't dress up like a like a caterpillar. I mean, you're much cooler. That's right. She doesn't paint her face. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming into the garden with Leslie. You're welcome. It was super fun. Thanks, Kate. Coming up next, we're going to talk about what to do in your garden this week. Are you ready for the garden of your dreams? GreatGardenPlants.com is here to help with perennials and shrubs delivered right to your door. With over 800 plants to choose from, you'll find exciting new varieties as well as old favorites. And their new website makes plant shopping really easy and fun because you can figure out zone, light, color, and yada, yada, yada. And once you're ready to order, you can choose when you get the plants. So it's not while you're sitting on a beach someplace. And if you're worried about shipping plants in the mail, you don't have to because they're going to arrive in great condition but they are guaranteed. And as a listener of this show, you can save 10% on your first order with the code GARDENWITHLESLIE. So visit greatgardenplants.com and shop with the code GARDENWITHLESLIE for 10% off and happy gardening. I really like listening to Kate and her information and passion about the monarch butterfly. If you would like to become a monarch way station in your garden, look for the links in the show notes at lhgardens.com. That's on the blog tab. I do write a blog that accompanies every episode. I call it the blog that no one reads, but now it seems that two or three people or maybe even five are reading it. And if you're reading it, that's something to celebrate. And I thank you. Questions from listeners. So I got a lot of questions on pruning macrophylla hydrangeas. You know, I still can't bring myself to prune them. And I was in the garden and hoping to yesterday on April 4th, but I still can't touch these increasingly incongruous, what with spring bursting out all over, except for these guys this incongruous army of brown sticks, which are, in fact, my Mac hydrangeas. It's just going to take another week or maybe a couple more weeks to understand what made it through the winter and what did not. And there's really no hurry. Well, I mean, I say that, but I'm dying a little bit on the inside every time I glance at them because they're, they're pretty horrible looking. But if I contain my aesthetic and just be calm, there's no reason to hurry. And as I've said before, there's never any reason to prune your hydrangeas but I'm a little weary of looking at brown sticks. And if they insist on being brown sticks for the rest of the season, off with their heads as soon as I'm sure which are the brown and which are the green. And if you're a listener who is a little befuddled on what type of hydrangea that you grow, it's hard to explain in a podcast, honestly, truth to tell. So I found a fairly comprehensive post on a blog called The Empress of Dirt, and I'm going to link to it in my show notes, good photographs, descriptions, and what they all look like and how to handle them. But don't forget, no matter what you've read or heard, in terms of horticultural health of your plant, no type of hydrangea ever has to be pruned. But then again, no gardener should ever have to look at brown sticks. So there's that too. So I hung a garden disaster out there on Instagram this week, like laundry for all to see. And that is that I don't seem to be able to grow poppies. I appreciate those of you who commiserated with me and profess to have a similar lack of skill. Sure, yeah, I believe you. You're not just saying that to make me feel better. But then all of you garden fairies who sprinkle seeds and poppies pop up willy-nilly like some sort of, I don't know, seed sorcery. Well, I'll try anything and everything that you suggested, and I thank you for your input. Oh, and somebody asked me, well, actually, let's just pretend that somebody asked me it because I feel like it's time to report in. How's that experiment going where you're making your own seed starting soil with your compost and stuff? Yeah, not as well as I would like. 
I tried six different types of natives by sewing outside to get that cold stratification thing that they needed. So I did it in February. And I just got two or three little babies out of most of the kinds and zero of a couple. That's from a whole packet of seeds. So my batting average would get me kicked off the team for sure. Amanda, the ever hopeful gardener, suggested that I add insect frass. I think, I think that's, um, you know, excrement and mycorrhizae to my mix. And I don't even remember whether I put those two items into the mix with the seeds that I sowed in February. That's just me being the silly non-record-keeping gardener. Well, let's just say that I continue to experiment with my own compost, so I'm microwaving it to get most of the weed seeds out. But oh my gosh, did you know that verbena bonariensis seeds are one tough cookie? I mean, they seemingly like to be cooked because they keep coming through. Anyway, in my latest rendition, and I'll have to see the results because I'm beginning to sow summer annuals in this mix, it's the cook compost, insect frass, and mycorrhizae suggested by Amanda, builder sand and perlite for drainage, and then a touch of slow-release fertilizer. Obviously, there's no good in fertilizing a seed, but hope and possibly the seed will spring eternal. So why don't I just go to the store and buy the bag product that would help me to get my seeds started like any sane person would do? I don't know. I just wanted to use my compost, and I also wanted to buy fewer bags of things. And then I go buy all those items that I just listed that I'm going to mix into my compost. So one could argue that that defeats the purpose of my little crusade to lessen my single-use plastic bag thing. But I guess I'm doing it because it's fun. Otherwise, I certainly would not be doing it. But I might give in depending on the returns of my annual seed packets. Maybe I'll just go buy one big bag of seed starting soil. I'll keep you posted. All right, what's blooming in my garden right now? Oh my gosh, what isn't? Well, lots of things aren't. But mid-season daffodils... Sir Winston Churchill is particularly making me smile. He is so tall. I mean, he wasn't, but this Narcissus is and smells delicious. The real Winston Churchill might have had a touch of cigar smoke and bourbon on him, but this guy, very sweet. The earliest tulips, including Pink Perfection from Color Blends. Oh, by the way, Color Blends is a third-generation bulb company offering top-sized flower bulbs directly to ambitious residential gardeners and landscape professionals at wholesale prices. I buy about 90% of my bulbs from Color Blends, and I've been so, so happy with the flowers that they have produced. The azaleas are beginning to pop. Dogwoods are on the cusp. My amelanchier has actually finished blooming. Bloodroot is going along nicely. The hack-on grass is about four inches tall. A few ferns are starting to unfurl. Leucogium is beginning to fade just a little bit. The camassia and allium bulbs have got plenty of beautiful foliage, but they haven't started to bloom at this stage. Camasia will come next. That'll probably be, you know, second week in April. I've got pulmonaria, bleeding heart, and some other things that I just can't think of right now. The last two episodes I've touched on when is a good time to take down last season's perennial tatters, or as my friend Scott Berline calls them, dental records. And it certainly is time now in my garden. I finished up the rest of them yesterday, and the place just looks more like spring without them except for those darn hydrangea sticks. <laughs> oh, I heard a good tip on Gardener's Question Time this week. Do you know we gardeners are always asking, is it warm enough to do this? Or when do you do that in spring? And you probably shouldn't rely on any sort of calendar, especially in these crazy weather times. I mean, it's going to be different every year. There was a question aimed at Christine Walkton, who's one of the earthier panelists, about, I think it was like when to plant dahlias. 
And she was trying to explain how it's not just the air temperature that needs to be warm, it's the soil temperature that needs to be warm. And she mentioned that a good test would be if you just remove your knickers and put your bottom on the soil, and if it feels warm, that's warm soil. So there's a gardening tip if I ever heard one. And I know for one that dahlia tubers like warm soil, so don't jump the gun on those. But if you're tempted to start them in a pot that is exposed to sun on all sides, it just makes sense that that would warm up faster. I don't think you actually have to remove your knickers and do that soil test, but it's a good imaginary sensation that could guide you in terms of warm soil testing. Okay, what else am I doing? I have turned off the heat on my heated porch and I've opened up the windows. Did that a few days ago. So that means that all of those plants are hardened off for temperatures down in the 40s or so. And that means I can pull them out and start to play with them as long as they are all in the shade at first. Many indoor plants are indeed full sun tolerant. Sansevierias jump to mind, but they need to start out slowly. Don't stick them out there like that boneheaded college kid in March in Fort Lauderdale. They need to build up sun tolerance so that they can then have the savage tan. I'm going to pot up all those amaryllis, amaryllai, they're really hippie astrum, bulbs that I saved, and I'm going to put them in one or two big pots, eventually in mostly sun, but of course I have to train them for that. And then I'm just going to let them be strappy plants all summer in hopes of getting outdoor blooms late next spring or summer. You know, I'll pull them in for the winter and put them out again, not as potential Christmas decorations, because that's difficult timing, but just as a flowering plant for spring, early summer of 2024. This is the way Linda Vodder from Potager Blog handles it, and I want to see how it goes for me. I think it's a good idea. I can't help deadheading early bulbs in case that helps them bloom next year. And of course, I'm leaving the foliage as long as it will photosynthesize. And I'm cleaning out my pond and my little stream, and I'm seeing lots of tadpoles and a few frogs, so that's exciting. So what to listen to this week? I suggest Tom Christopher of Growing Greener. He keeps hitting home runs. I recommend his last two episodes. But in case you only have time for one gardening podcast in your life, let it be mine and let me summarize for you. In the March 29th episode, Tom interviewed Doug Tallamy, our hero, because the smart people at Timber Press have decided to go small with his Nature's Best Hope book. They hired a woman named Sarah Thompson, who has done this sort of thing before. I mean, what she did was she took this adult-type book, which is a really good and easy read if you've never read it, Nature's Best Hope, but she took it and she aimed it at younger folks. So it's been rewritten for middle school-aged children. As Doug and Tom both point out, a lot of the people who garden and who have the resources both in time and otherwise to concentrate on this great topic of being kind to the earth well, they're the ones who are not going to be able to carry it forward for too long. I mean, I intend to carry it forward for at least a couple more decades, but tick tock, right? So the strategy is to brainwash, I mean, teach younger people what Doug has to say about doing little individual things and having your own yard be the place where you can contribute to the greater good. As always, Talami outlines how important this topic is, how easily it can be addressed by individual gardening changes that are just totally doable. For instance, have you changed your outdoor lights for yellow bulbs, by the way? Insects are not attracted to those nearly as much as white bulbs. So simple. I wrote to Doug and asked if I could get a few sentences on his thought about this new development, and he actually said yes to a last-minute interview. So I will be featuring him on this podcast in the next month or so. And we'll talk about this new book, Nature's Best Hope, written for kids. 
The March 22nd episode of Growing Greener with Tom Christopher featured the executive director of something called the Perfect Earth Project. His name is Matt Jeffrey. So what is the Perfect Earth Project? Well, you take one swishy New York City and Long Island garden designer, you add awareness about the earth and passion to make a change, and you get a nonprofit whose goal is, this is from the website, to persuade homeowners and fellow landscaping professionals to stop treating the land with chemicals. The founder is Edwina von Gall, and she has many equally swishy clients in her social set, including Ina Garten and Itzhak Marazi. So if she gets these people on board to get the word out that they actually love their properties to be chemical-free and they understand that they could still look amazingly beautiful, well, that is very cool. I know that there are so many people who are just busy trying to get through the day, and they have this understanding that their garden has to be neat. And traditionally, that's meant lawns and a lot of plants from Asia. I think it's really true and commendable, and it usually doesn't hurt anything except when they put chemicals on it, because of course, the chemicals that you put on your yard don't stay in your yard. What many people don't understand is that it can look beautiful and neat without any chemicals. Contractors who are just trying to make a living apply a lot of chemicals on lawn because as far as they know, that's the way it's done. That's the way to do it. And the look of a perfect lawn is actually the look that all their clients strive for. They don't understand that they can run their business differently and better by educating their clients about the fact that whatever is applied to the lawn, again, doesn't stay on the lawn, and that a manicured swath of grass that has some native weeds like violets and clover mixed right in is actually a good thing. It's a process, right? People just need to learn. I'll put links to all of this information on the blog at lhgardens.com. Hey, here's a podcast review that I got from Joji Murph. Leslie has awesome guests from the garden world and a knack for presenting material. She's funny and fun, and what really seals the deal is her friendliness. It's a great podcast, and I look forward to it every other week. Thank you, Joji Murph. And dear listener, if you have not rated or reviewed this podcast, I welcome you to do it on Apple. It really helps grow the show, so thanks in advance. And thank you very sincerely if you already have. Hey, I wanted to mention that I'm doing a presentation around here in Charlottesville. If you're a local, you might be interested. It's going to be put on by the Thomas Jefferson Garden Club, and it will be held on Tuesday, May 23rd at 10 a.m. at the Greencroft Club. And if you want a ticket, here's what you do. You have to reach out to Carol Buckner at C.A. Buckner. That's C-A-B-U-C-K-N-E-R, C.A. Buckner 15 at gmail.com. Carol should be able to set you up with a $20 ticket, and there's actually a light lunch offered at an additional price, too. So that's May 23rd at 10 a.m. at the Greencroft Club. And what will I be talking about? Well, my talk is called Thoughtful Gardening, and I really take all of these wonderful ideas that I get from my guests, and I put it together in a presentation that just sort of guides us on how we can all be a little bit better at gardening in terms of enjoyment and in terms of being kind to the earth, which, to me are now really one and the same thing. If you have any questions or comments or corrections, please reach out to me at lhgardens.com or on Instagram. I am Leslie Harris LH. If you go to my website, have a look at the blog that accompanies this podcast and add your comments and consider buying me a coffee to help support the podcast. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Dos Amigos Landscaping, Color Blends Bulbs, GreatGardenPlants.com, and my friend, artist Karen Blair. 
I named this show Into the Garden with Leslie because I'm really into my garden. I want to get you into yours. And there ends the regularly scheduled programming. But stay tuned for a couple more clips. First, you're going to hear me talking with my friends Scott Berline and Marianne Wilburn about a trip that they were about to go on when we recorded the conversation. And I think now they have just completed by the time you hear this. Have a listen. That was a fun little clip to listen to us being a little bit silly at the Lord Baltimore at that Mance conference. We were so much sillier, though. You cut out the silliest parts. You know, if people want to just hang on to the end of this particular episode, we can put in the real sillies like outtakes at the end. So that's an idea. I think they want to. Yeah. So I'm here with Scott and Marianne again for a quick conversation, but nobody's been drinking very much as Marianne holds up a bucket of red wine. (sighs) We want to talk about a slightly separate topic. These two are going Thelma and Louise on us. They are going to hit the road and wait a minute. <laughs> go see but who's, who's and we'll discuss who's Thelma. Who's I'm Louise. Louise. All right, I'm Louise. <laughs> I guess I'm Thelma. I have to watch that movie and see what that means. <laughs> I don't sure know myself. actually. I just I just guessed. <laughs> so so Marianne Wilburn and Scott Berline. Um, Scott from the Cincinnati Botanical. No, what is it? The Cincinnati. Zoo. Botanical Garden and Zoo. Botanical Garden and Zoo. Some misguided people call it the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden, but just a few. And they don't even know how the alphabet works. So yeah, that's right. silly. Um, and then Marianne, who is my pal and such a good writer for so many different, you know, she, she writes in so many different places. But what we're going to do uh, today I'm not is... I'm your pal. And I, no, oh, right. This <laughs> that's a great introduction, Les. You are my pal. We, we have grandchildren moments. Oh, we do. Yeah, we do. All right. Anyway, tell us about this trip. Scott, what is going on? Where are you going? And why are you going there? That's a really good question. Um, should I have aimed it at Marianne? You should have aimed it at Marianne, but I'll, I'll give it a try. Uh, the cast trials or the, the spring trials in California are kind of the beginning of the gardening year for the annuals world and some perennials too. But a lot of the, the breeders and growers on the West Coast have a series of events and trials where you can go from place to place and see a lot of the plants and meet a lot of the breeders and growers. And it's um, just a a huge industry event that kind of steers where the industry is going as far as uh, the plants that are being introduced and and what to expect. So Marianne, why do you think it's important? Why do you want to go? I mean, it's far, far away. Of course, your mother lives out there, a little easier for you, but it still. Is far. I mean, the most obvious thing is it's the coast of California at the best time of the year to see California, but I'm, we're not going for that reason, honestly. It's it's because it is a chance to see and, and talk to breeders, what they're doing, why they're doing it. Uh, they're there, they're showing off these beautiful plants. You're, and like Scott said, you're seeing sort of the, the angle that the industry is taking. And I went you know, back in 2018 as a plant nerd through the National Garden Bureau. I was really lucky enough to be invited to that. And I have never learned so much about how the industry works uh, doing that trip and and meeting so many breeders and meeting uh, so many companies and and what they're looking for and hearing the stories behind them too, which was just fascinating. It's it's nice to keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on. I mean, I'm not growing a lot of petunias here in my shady valley, um, and I can guarantee we're going to see about 
18 million petunias too many, but we're also going to see some incredible introductions for perennials and, and intersectional species and all sorts of cool things that they're doing that you might not expect. There's so many people who are out there doing the same trip that you run into. It's, it's just a fantastic event to, to see people and, and talk plants. That sounds really good. Scott, what do you hope to gain from your participation in this trip? What are you looking for? Just hoping to come home alive. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm going to be there with Marianne and a friend of hers I've never met. Oh. Uh, you know, four days in a car or something, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, you know, I didn't get to do that. I, I was supposed to, to make that trip with the National Gardening Bureau in 2020 and COVID hit. For some reason, <laughs> they invited him. I don't know why. Yeah, Marianne <laughs> put a word in for me. So, uh, you know, obviously I owe her very much, but um, so anyway, that didn't happen. So this will be my time to go. And, and I, uh, I'm just really super excited, you know, to see how it all works and, you know, how the players fit together too, because the, the way that the annuals industry in particular is put together, it's a lot of companies that work together and don't work together, uh, companies that are part of other companies and, and, just getting a sense of how it all fits together is really important. But mostly for me, it, it's always, it always comes down to the plants. I mean, there's some amazing breeding going on, just amazingly beautiful plants coming out every year. Now we're really in a, I feel like a, uh, uh, a just a golden hour of, of annuals breeding. And uh, I'm just excited to see what, what, what's going on out there. So you're speaking both as a personal gardener, but also, you know, realize listeners that these two people are writers and, you know, in the industry. So they need to know, they need to be cutting edge. So Marianne, explain to our y'all's readers, my listeners, why this would be important to them, because I'm sure they'll get it. They'll get it from this podcast when you come back and talk to me about it. And they'll also get it in things that you will almost certainly right for your columns. So what are you going to present to them? Well, it's it's what's going to be on their shelves next year, basically. Um, it's what they're going to be seeing, what they're going to have access to, uh, what's going to sort of go out and what's going to come in. And that affects them. And it, it affects you more than you know. When you go into that nursery, you're presented with a certain amount of plants and and knowing that there's something special coming out or that you might not be able to get a hold of something else because this is the new thing. I think that that makes a difference for people. What it takes to get a plant to that shelf, it's an enormous process now. It's not just somebody putting together a few cuttings and and it going out there and, and buying it. It's, it's just an enormous process. And for me, like Scott was saying, the breeding is is unbelievable and talk being able to talk to the breeders and find out their stories about why they're they're regular human beings that are creating these incredible plants and talk to them get those stories and then be able to translate that to audiences is pretty cool and just see what's new what's fun all right so if you all survive this trip, yes, um, and I believe that Thelma and Louise doesn't end well, so maybe you don't see that movie. I've just got to make sure that Scott doesn't like have a thing with a Brad Pitt character somewhere in the middle of it, and we'll be fine. Well, I really need to see that movie. <laughs> you got to know what you're getting into. <laughs> no. All right, so we're looking forward to hearing how you survive 
and we'll keep our tabs on the Dear Gardener letters, which you can sort of like, you know, rat-a-tat-tat say to each other while you're in the car, just give it to each other. Um, looking forward to catching up with that sort of thing on Garden Rant and at your various places where you write all your great stuff. So thank you for your quick visit. Thank you. Thank you. That wasn't funny. Can you be better than that? I know, but we're all like so... <sighs> no, 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 just at the end. The rest of it was good. Thank um, you for your quick visit. No, you're not welcome. This was insulting. <laughs> I hated the whole thing. Okay, so we're going to look forward to that interview with both of them in which we will find out what the heck they saw. The next thing you're going to hear is a quick little interview that the three of us did in Baltimore in January. And the purpose of this was to explain the relationship that they have online on GardenRant.com. That's enough intro. You'll listen and you'll figure it out. So we're live at the Lord Baltimore Hotel, and this is Mance. And Mance is, what is it, the Mid-Atlantic Nursery Trade Show. I've never been. I'm riding the coattails of my friends Scott Berline and, and Marianne Wilburn because they're introducing me to all these fabulous people. But what we wanted to accomplish tonight was to get an intro to this bigger idea of getting you all to understand the relationship that these two gardeners have online on GardenRant.com. So, yeah, yeah, we've had, we, have we had it? Did you have a drink? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Yeah. I think, I think I've One had or a few. two. We've had, yeah. yeah. So, so it's been, you know, there's a little uh, conversational lubrication in that way. However, this is just to sort of let you know what the real interview, which will not be based in alcohol, uh, to come later will be about. So, gardenrant.com. Scott, what, what, what do you and Marianne do there? Um, well, we each write regular blogs, um, but the, what's more fun for me is the Dear Gardener series of letters, which we try to do every two, two weeks or so, wow, back that and often. forth. Yeah. yeah, which in my opinion, are, it's, it's just like a, a fun, informal relationship between two gardeners uh, who aren't taking themselves or gardening all that seriously, but are. Right, because you're into it. I mean, right. yeah, you're you're into it, and yet you're into also the mistakes and terrible things that you do in your garden. So into the terrible mistakes yeah. we do. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's good for everybody to know about. I like to share those, too. You've probably noticed those things, dear listeners. All right, Marianne, tell us more. Well, um, it started out because Scott threw British garden writers under the bus. Oh, yeah, Rightfully. yeah. Many, you're in a horticulture article and, and column for Horticulture Magazine. And I was just in a mood to answer him that day. I don't know why. We had met at a conference many, a couple years before, I think. And I knew he had a sense of humor, so I knew he wouldn't take it too hard what I was about to do. I knew Susan. I didn't write for Garden Rant at the time. And I said, hey, Susan, I've got a rebuttal to this article. And she said, oh, hell yeah. <laughs> and and so Susan is uh, Susan Harris, who, oh. uh, one of the original uh, partners who founded Garden which is what 16 years old 16 years old this year yeah. yeah so a really established and this is not the blog to read if you want to know how to divide your hellebores this no, is where we you don't go know. Yeah. You get, they, yeah. they have no idea <laughs> no it's because it's what you want to read if you want to just know more about what's 
cutting edge or, uh, you know, what could be argued about? It's what could be, it's screens. It's, it's screen. It's, it's also things that bother us, things that might not bother us that are interests to the garden industry. There's all sorts of stuff on there. There's lovely, wonderful, poetic posts from, from people. We have guest ranchers come in. Um, who have something in their craw they want to share. Ellen um, Bush, just like yeah. most thoughtful post. Elizabeth Licata. Licata, who does so many posts that are just really punchy, good. Yeah, punchy, hard, yeah. yeah. But I would, I would maintain that my favorite part of this GardenRant.com is to watch these two duke it out and they're giving each other a hard time which makes me happy because i love to give each of them a hard time so they're kind of getting getting that done for me they're also imparting quite a bit of good horticultural information we're trying to yeah we're trying to even even scott is right but at the same time we have a lot of litigation and (laughs) uh, lawyers that are protecting us from anything that we so might it's it's be an expensive so, so pursuit. So that's a complete lie, as you would expect. <laughs> but that's actually one of the cool things about these letters is that we're not curating them. We're not talking about oh, this is how this letter has to go. Many times we'll post a letter and the other person won't even see it until they get online and look. Like and the so, general public like sees the it general before you do. Will see it before maybe. I do and react to it and am hurt by it and I have to cry <laughs> for hours. And, yeah. So but you it, didn't call your lawyer. And I don't call my lawyer. No, I don't. Okay. So the thoughts and the attitude behind it is pure gardening worldwide. Yeah. 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 So we're going to go into this more sans cocktail, sans Lord Baltimore hum of uh, conversation below us. We're on the mezzanine. And, and this uh, big oversized couch. <laughs> the biggest which couch cannot I've actually. I, I, tease, I tease that I write the blog that no one reads. People read Garden Rant. Nobody reads mine. But you've got to go to my blog and see these photographs. Or probably Marianne will post them. Fine. Go to that one. I don't care. But they're pretty funny photographs. All right. So we'll do this. We'll do this properly uh, later. 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 Okay. And lastly, if you haven't thrown your phone off of a bridge, you are in the dubious position of listening to the three of us practice, practice in air quotes, for that interview. We're on an Edith Ann type piece of furniture. It's so darn big. And we're having trouble keeping ourselves together. So this is so not about gardening, and I do apologize. Where are you going? Oh, I'll get my drink. Oh. <laughs> I right, get back on the... At least I can get back up and, and off again. I know, I'm going to need assistance. <laughs> right. Hey, so, yeah, we're at the Lord Baltimore Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and it's yeah. yeah, yeah, we are. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I went well. I will not <laughs> compose myself. I'm glad you're the first Just one. Just sit yeah. back. Where are you going? I want to see your face. <laughs> no, I want to see this is very so, we're at the, so, okay. Um, so, you know, this podcast is going to be about this really cool thing that happens between Marianne Wilburn and Scott Berline on GardenRant.com. But we thought we'd give it a little preface here at the Lord, ba- <laughs> Lord Baltimore Hotel. Uh, we're at Nance. Yes, we have a couple of drinks under our belts. But we just wanted to introduce the topic in a, a more casual way. In um, a less sober kind of way. <laughs> that sort of way. Yeah. So so tell us, Scott, about our topic. At this point, we sort of launch into a semi-serious, but also not very efficient description of what's going to happen. You heard that in the first outtake. 
connecting with other gardeners and how important that is. I and mean, that's fun. And fun that is. Yeah. Beyond just the quick Facebook check-ins with garden groups or what have you, but actually having relationships with gardeners uh, all over the place, like real relationships, you know, intimate relationships. Ones that you can foster online. And, and um, honestly, oh, yeah. yeah, but then can be completed or enhanced by actually seeing each other, advanced, visiting each other's garden. Ad- completed advanced. or enhanced, but not consummated. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be editing this part. I, if, if I don't edit this part, you know there's something wrong with my standards. <laughs> All right, so let's get on to the real part of the interview, which is to be recorded later when we are not here on this oversized sofa. Bye-bye. Okay, if you made it through all that, I know you really don't know how to work your phone that well. And if this was your first time listening to this podcast, holy cow, you'll never come back. But the purpose of all this silliness was to get you to know Marianne and Scott a little better and to get you to take advantage of the great relationship that they have through the letters that they write to each other on GardenRant.com. I'm going to have them both on the show to talk about it more sometime in the next couple months. Thank you so much for your patience. 